This episode of the Weekly Standard Podcast is sponsored by The Great Courses. The Great Courses brings the world's greatest professors to your fingertips with more than 500 audio and video series on science, history, philosophy, fine arts, better living, and more. The Great Courses are available on digital download and streaming at thegreatcourses.com or on DVD and CD or via The Great Courses apps. Best of all, you can listen to or watch The Great Courses at your own pace without the pressure of homework or exams. And now, for a limited time only, The Great Courses is giving our listeners an offer of up to 80% off the original price of selected courses, including writing creative nonfiction. For this limited time, 80% off offer, go to thegreatcourses.com slash WS. That's thegreatcourses.com slash WS. Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. With us on the Weekly Standard is Steve Hayes. And Steve, as one of the people who lives in flyover country, I'm dying to hear from you what you're hearing inside D.C. from the super smart beltway types about the uh, GOP field for 2016. The super smart bellway types. Yeah, the ones I, who I gave us. Him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the one, the ones who gave us uh, John McCain and Mitt Romney. You know, the smart ones. Right, right. Uh, no, I, I have done. You know, I'm, you're always talking to, to sources and, and people in the states and both in, there and in Washington. And I, I would say the story out of the past couple of weeks is probably Marco Rubio. Um, the fact that he's, you know, he's clearly had this bounce. You see it reflected in both national polling to a certain extent and, and in state by state polling. Um, by all accounts, he's doing quite well behind the scenes in his fundraising. Um, and, and it seems poised to exceed expectations when the numbers, uh, come out, the big numbers come out this summer. So I'd say he's probably the big story. The other thing you hear from, from people is, is, you know, particularly in light of this poll, this Quinnipiac poll that came out today that showed Jeb Bush at 5%, is that um, people are surprised at that. You know, you figure that Jeb Bush, just on on name identification alone, would be doing better than 5%. And that's in Iowa. Seventh place. And that's, that's in Iowa, right. correct. And now, you know, you could make the argument that Iowa isn't, isn't a sort of a natural place for Jeb Bush to do well, though both his father and his brother did well there. Um but, you know, he's not putting in a lot of resources at this time. He's not certainly not spending time there as some of the other candidates are. Um, he's got room to grow both in Iowa and elsewhere. But I do think if, if you're, you know, with the stipulation, the caveat that, that all of these numbers are very early, that it's, you don't want to draw too many conclusions of them, uh, about them, you still, I think, have to be somewhat concerned if you're a, a Jeb Bush supporter in Jeb Bush's camp and he's at 5% this early. Well, the uh, Wall Street Journal poll also shows that nationally the number of Republicans who are willing to consider voting for Jeb Bush jumped from around 52% or so to around 70%. So uh, he's clearly helping his brand nationally. Uh, what should we take away from polls that show, for example, Walker consistently doing well, having a lead in early states, polls that show Rubio on the rise and these shifts in Jeb's fortunes? You know, is the answer... It's too early. Yeah, look, I mean, th th this is now the newest thing. You see everybody tweeting out these these polls and saying, oh, polls this early are totally meaningless. Well, they're not totally meaningless. I mean, you, you don't want to overinterpret them. I mean, they are, uh, you know, almost a year away from, from the early primaries. And, and so you don't, you know, you don't want to put too much faith in them. But they're not meaningless. I mean, it matters that Scott Walker sort of shot to the top of the pack in Iowa and, and is at or near the top in national polls this early suggests that there was a, a pre-existing base of support for him, or at least people who are 
willing to be supportive based on what they know about him. And that, I think, is is a fair amount if you're talking about grassroots conservatives. Um, so I think, you know, it, it tells us that Scott Walker was likely to be a first-tier candidate, remains a first-tier candidate, and I think, absent some major gaffe, will continue to be a first-tier candidate. You know, if you talk about the three candidates most likely to win the Republican nomination, I would include the three that you just mentioned, Scott Walker, Marco Rubio, and Jeb Bush, um, you know. I'm sorry, how, I, I had a glitch. This, I had a glitch with my headphones. Donald Trump was which one? <laughs> Donald Trump not likely to be the Republican nominee. I hate to say. Uh, actually, I don't hate to say that at all. <laughs> but do, let me ask you before I move on. I asked your colleague at the Weekly Standard, Michael Warren, about the people who just got in this week. Uh, uh, Carly Fiorina and Ben Carson and uh, Mike Huckabee. Two quick questions. One, the view of them from the political class, you know, inside looking out. And then what impact, where do you see them having an impact? Hurting, helping, sudden strength, surprise? You know, I think from the perspective of the political class, there's sort of a wave of the hand, dismissive. You know, ah, Carly Fiorina, she lost her Senate race. Ben Carson, who's Ben Carson? Mike Huckabee, Mike Huckabee's old news. I think they ought to be taken a little bit more seriously than that. I mean, certainly it's the case that I think um, at least some in the Republican establishment would like to see Carly Fiorina and Ben Carson on the debate stage just to so show sort of the, the diversity of, of ideas, the diversity of candidates. Um, and they like the idea of, of having uh, those two in particular uh, as part of the debates. Carly Fiorina has been pretty tough on Hillary Clinton. She's made arguments in a, in a way that I think has been more aggressive than most of the other candidates at this point. Um, ben Carson has this huge underground following. You know, Fred Barnes in his profile of Ben Carson, I think it was about two months ago in the Weekly Standard, pointed out that Ben Carson's book had outsold Hillary Clinton's book at the time by nearly 100,000 copies. And it's fair to assume that it's probably done even better since then. Um, so he's got he's got a, a, a base of support and certainly uh, an enthusiastic following among some conservatives in the grassroots. But the person who's most likely, I think, to actually have an impact on the race is Huckabee. Um, he's a tremendous retail politician. People see him in person. They love him. He's sort of warm. Um, you know, he's, he's a guy who, who I think is, is appealing to people. He tells stories and, you know, depending on how you see him, he either sounds sort of like a self-help guru, which people might not like, or you see him as somebody who's, you know, the word to describe him is folksy, um, who speaks the language of sort of the everyday Americans that Hillary Clinton claims to represent. Well, as a guy who grew up in South Carolina, certainly in Iowa, he could, he could, he could have an impact. As a guy who grew up in South Carolina, anyone whose book has the words grits and gravy in the title, you know, is definitely my kind of guy. Uh, Let's go over to the other side, the Democrats, and look at that, uh, uh, that unstoppable juggernaut, the Bernie Sanders campaign. Uh, no, wait. Um, I, if you look at the Hillary Clinton campaign on paper, if you just say figure who was last, you know, politically significant in, uh, you know, in the 1990s or who, who, who came to political problems in the 1990s, a uh, person who uh, has only won an election in blue state, New York, person who has been followed by scandal literally her entire life, person who hid emails that belonged to the government, deleted the emails and refuses to hand over the server, person who collected literally 
hundreds of millions of dollars from foreign governments while Secretary of State. You would just write that off, uh, Steve. You just completely write that off. Uh, and then you look at the poll numbers, 80% of Democrats tell the Wall Street Journal pollsters, we are sticking with Hillary Clinton. We, are, we still give her a thumbs up. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, that's sort of a rally around the, the candidate effect, right? I mean, there, there at this point doesn't appear to be another candidate who's seriously willing to challenge her. I, I will say I'm surprised um, that at this point you haven't seen more frontal aggressive attacks from Martin O'Malley and, and from Bernie Sanders, on, specifically on the email questions. I mean, you would think that there's a huge constituency in the Democratic Party that whatever, you know, wherever they are ideologically, they have concerns about big money in politics, about, um, you know, at least the appearance of, of corruption or quid pro quo. And yet you haven't had a serious sustained set of attacks from any of the would-be Democratic challengers. Uh, and then I think you see that reflected in the polling. You know, that's one of the reasons that she's 80 at 80 percent is that at least now she's still viewed by Democrats and, and those, uh, you know, likely Democratic primary voters as the as the front runner, if not the inevitable nominee. But if it's true that one of the things that hurt Mitt Romney was because he was an out-of-touch millionaire. Surely, being an out-of-touch millionaire who got your millions through a scam foundation system that took money from dictators and thugs has to be a negative, right? Boy, I mean, you, you sure would think, and, and if you look at the comments that you had from, from Bill Clinton this week, he's done, he's done a, a couple of interviews, um, which I, and they've, they've pushed back, they've set up a website to push back on some of the claims about the foundation and this Clinton cash. Um, the fact that they're pushing back suggests that they understand that it's done some damage. The New York Times CBS poll uh, out today, I believe it was, suggests that it didn't do much damage. But the, the poll, if you, if you read it carefully, certainly feels like an outlier. Um, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll suggested that it did do damage. Fox polls have suggested it. CNN polls have suggested that she's not viewed as honest and trustworthy, which is a huge – I think that's a huge problem if you're Hillary Clinton. It's a huge problem if you're anybody, but it's particularly a problem if you're Hillary Clinton. And not just on the personal side of things. One of the I'm working on a, a story for next week's Weekly Standard about – this trust issue, and certainly it's a problem if you're if you if you're not viewed as trustworthy or honest by the electorate. But it's particularly a problem for Democrats at a time when the faith, faith in government is so low. I mean, we are now at you know basically post Watergate levels of a lack of faith in government, skepticism of government, and you know Hillary Clinton is going to be selling policies that reinvest power or uh, expand the power of the federal government. If she's a non-trustworthy candidate trying to sell things that voters are inclined to be skeptical about, I think that makes it, that, that tilts the playing field toward Republicans in a pretty significant way. I don't know. I, I think I could trust a President Hillary not to do anything knowingly inappropriate. And Steve, if you can be a Clinton and you can still say <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the year 2015, knowingly inappropriate, essentially what the Clintons have announced, in my opinion, is yes, you know we're corrupt, we know you know we're corrupt, and we are not going to even try to hide the fact that we're corrupt. We're just going to you know, keep uh, throwing dirt on any smoking guns we can, and you, the American people, will accept us. I, I don't know. That, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable bet from what I've seen so far. 
I mean, it, it may not be, and a lot of it obviously will depend on how much the media invests in investigating this, like old school, good old fashioned investigative reporting. We've seen some of that. We haven't seen, in my view, enough of that as it relates to the, the Clinton Foundation. But the, the things that Bill Clinton ha- have said over the past few days are truly head scratching. I mean, you know, you've got him saying, saying, uh, saying that you've got him um, responding to questions about five hundred thousand dollars of speech by saying, by literally saying, we've got to pay. Got to pay the bills. Yeah, as, as if, as if you couldn't pay all of your bills with the one five hundred thousand dollars. Oh no, no, no! It's just like um, the fact that he uh, got almost claimed almost nothing in capital gains, and that almost nothing is three hundred seventy-one thousand right. dollars. And I know Steve, all the everyday Americans I know, three seventy-one—that's lunch money, right? <laughs> well, this is the thing. I mean, on substance, I don't think Bill Clinton has done anything at all to push back on the serious claims raised in this Clinton cash book, which I'm in the middle of, but also by the New York Times, by Joe Becker, the investigative reporter there and, and others. I mean, these are real questions that have substance to them. And Bill Clinton's only response on that is they don't have a shred of evidence that there was any kind of uh, untoward activity. That's nonsense. The entire Peter Schweitzer book is evidence. Now, some of it's circumstantial. We could argue that a lot of it is circumstantial, but it's circumstantial and troubling. And in the United States, we sometimes send people to prison for circumstantial evidence. I'm not suggesting that that's what's happening here, but there's evidence. And for him to sort of blithely deny that there's even evidence that they engage in wrongdoing or that there are serious questions about the, the kind of uh, what look on the surface to be quid pro quos, uh, I think is not a very fruitful line of, of argument or pushback for him because it's so manifestly obvious that there is evidence. What he needs to do is debunk that evidence or discredit that evidence. But you're right. I think they're so used to having things go their way or people look past uh, the corruption that Maybe he feels he doesn't actually need to engage on the substance of those questions. One last question for you. It's an impromptu book review because you just mentioned you're halfway through Clinton Cash. Uh, what's your take so far? What would you say about the book as both uh, something to read, a readable document, and then also about what you've learned thus far? Well, I, what you learn is that what we've seen in, in the you know the highlights that have been uh, reported in, in the media, um, whether you're talking about India, whether you're talking about Russia and Uranium One, whether you're talking about Frank Justra, those are some of the highlights, and they do tell a story. I mean, they do raise many additional questions about why exactly this happened, and I think the thing that, that Peter Schweitzer does effectively is sort of lay out the dots and allows the reader to connect the dots without really overstating his case. You know, Bill Clinton's other famous line is, you know, even the author of the book has had to acknowledge that he doesn't have evidence. Well, Schweitzer never acknowledges that he doesn't have evidence. What he does say, and he says in the introduction to the book is, look, we don't have proof. I can't tell you that I have proof that there were crimes committed, but I can lay out these facts and allow you to draw your own conclusions. And I think the conclusions that people who actually take the time to read the book will end up drawing are ones that are damning to the Clintons. And and in, in some ways, what I think is as damning as anything is not just the ramping up of, of contributions to the Clinton Foundation or the speeches to Bill Clinton that happen to coincide with uh, State Department business or other other matters, um, but also the significant drop off then after those matters are resolved. You see, basically, the in in some cases, you see these things kind of disappear, and the interest in either Bill Clinton or the Clinton Foundation or others 
kind of falls away. And, you know, I would, I would think that we should get an explanation for that. Well, he's just not as entertaining a speaker as he once was. You know, that's the, his material. <laughs> he needs to work as material. I think he's going to write it. By the way, I'm not reading Clinton Cash right now. I'm reading The Dadly Virtues featuring <gasps> Stephen F. Hayes. A great chapter on siblings in this uh, new book. And I'm looking forward to it in just in time for Father's Day. Excellent stuff. Yeah, it's a fun, it was a, that was a fun project. Well, yours, your, yours, your chapter was fantastic. Yeah. Me, as I told you, laughing out loud. <laughs> Um, so it's a fun. I think that's a fun book for people. Certainly, people who are looking for Father's Day gifts, but really for anybody who wants to laugh on a plane and have people look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> it happens to me all the time, and I'm not reading anything. Stephen Hayes, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. You bet. Thanks. You've been listening to the Weekly Standard podcast. Please be sure to check WeeklyStandard.com regularly for podcast updates. I'm your host, Michael Graham.